Hello and welcome to Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to continue our ongoing series on the First World War. Uh, and we're going to get a French perspective from the wartime journals, the wartime diaries of a French soldier called Louis Barta. So, who was this guy? Well, he was born in a place called Homs in France, which is in southern France, uh, really the extreme south of France. And to this day, this little village has less than a thousand people. For much of the war, he was a French infantry corporal, um, initially in the reserves because of his age. And he served in three different regiments at three different points of the war. So he started with the 280th Infantry Regiment, then he was in the 296th, then he was in the 248th. But in any case, um, he was notably a socialist, uh, and his trade, like what he did for a living, was he was a barrel maker. So already, if you watched episode two, where we got a German perspective from Ernst Jünger, already you see a bunch of differences. And I think when I when I get a chance to um, give you some of the readings that I've selected, if you've already listened to episode two, you can already start to compare and contrast them. So on the one hand, uh, Jünger is German and Barta is French, obviously, but uh, Jünger definitely leans right on the political spectrum, whereas Barta definitely leans, if not is completely left. Um, Barta was an enlisted man, so not an officer, whereas Jünger was an officer. And um, Barta started as the reserves. So Barta had a pre-war life. Uh, he had a pre-war family. Uh, whereas Jünger, when the war started, he was actually quite young. So in any case, I mean, hopefully you've listened to episode two recently. Uh, if you haven't, then maybe uh, give it a shot before listening to this one. But Louis Barta, <laughs> strangely enough, was actually born on Bastille Day, which is a national holiday in France. It commemorates the storming of the Bastille uh, that started the French Revolution. He wrote a series of notebooks, and that's what we're going to be talking about. So during the war, he was writing, writing, writing in the trenches. And actually, he was very much encouraged by his comrades in arms to be like, definitely take all of this down. Don't change anything. Don't try to censor it. People need to know what's happening here because they, they really were suffering a lot. By the time the war ended, there were 19 notebooks. So for the purposes of this reading, like when I when I give a selected quote, I'm going to be also telling you which notebook in case you ever want to find it later. Uh, his notebooks were eventually published by a professor and his grandson. Because what happened was though his notebooks stayed unpublished in the family home for more than 60 years. And they were only actually published in 1978 when just by chance, they were discovered by this guy called Remy Casals, and he was a professor from the University of Toulouse. And he, he was reading through them, and he was like, these are incredible. Like, you have to publish these. So, in 1978, they were published as Poilu, the World War I notebooks of Corporal Louis Barta, barrel maker, 1914 to 1918. 
Poilu, that is a huge word in uh, World War I French uh, slang. It comes from the French word poil, meaning like a, a, a hair or like fur. So like poilu is uh, someone who is like hairy or furry. And it was used to refer to these bearded, kind of uh, bestubbled French infantry soldiers. They, they called them poilus, like the, the hairy ones or, or the furry ones. Um, some of the themes we're going to be looking at for, uh, for the purposes of the analysis of this book is uh, Louis was intensely critical of the officers, but never, never like publicly, like he, he wasn't openly rebellious to the officers. Although he did take part in the French army mutinies of 1917, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, he talks about what does it mean to belong to a country? And why do people from different countries fight each other when in reality they actually have a lot more in common than they think uh he does touch on the subject of in some ways the men like the men of his squad there was actually more hostility between them and their own officers than there were between them and the common enlisted men of the other side who sometimes were in a trench uh close enough that they could actually talk to each other like like how insane is that uh, because if you're close enough to talk to people, you're close enough to shoot them, or or even you're close enough to throw a grenade. Uh, but there was kind of this unspoken agreement in many areas of the front. Not all areas of the front, but in many areas of the front that, you know, you wouldn't just... Um, you wouldn't do things like that. Like, it's unless you were ordered by your officers as part of an actual attack. Um, but in any case... You know, on the other hand, hey, like, that's not always true. People sniped at each other all the time. You could be just walking in a trench and, you know, you're so tired and hungry, you don't realize that your head pokes out a little bit above the trench and you get you get sniped. But um, anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get started with a selection of readings from, again, Louis Bartas, Poilu, the World War One Notebooks of Corporal Louis Bartas, Barrel Maker, 1914 to 1918. Our first reading is from the first notebook, and it deals with Louis Bartas' experience with uh, how he felt and what was happening when war was first declared. He writes, quote, August 2nd, 1914. A broiling hot August afternoon. The streets of the village all but deserted. Suddenly, a drum roll. Probably a traveling merchant setting up shop on the main square, or maybe some acrobats announcing their evening performance. But no, it's not that. When the drum falls silent, we hear the voice of the town clerk, the commissaire, as we call this unique embodiment of local authority. So we lend our ears, expecting to hear a reading of a new decree about rabies or keeping the streets clean. Alas, this fellow proceeded to announce the most frightful cataclysm to afflict humanity since the flood. He announced the greatest of all scourges, the source of all evils. He announced the general mobilization prelude to the war, 
the accursed, infamous war, which forever dishonored our century and blighted the civilization of which we were so proud. This announcement, to my great amazement, aroused more enthusiasm than sorrow. Unthinking people seemed proud to live in a time when something so magnificent was about to happen. Even the most indifferent didn't doubt for an instant that victory would be prompt and decisive. And then a little bit later, he writes, No one knew where to billet all these people running around with a purposefulness that disconcerted the military authorities themselves, who expected to have to deal with hundreds of slackers and deserters. But everyone stepped forward obediently to put their liberty in chains, to stoop beneath the yoke of militarism." End quote. You can already see from our first reading that when the war started, Louis already had a, a great deal of suspicion about the war's aims and its cause. Um, he was deeply distrustful of the authorities who he, he often considered uh, driven by self-interest, but that they would use these false idols, these kind of rallying cries to get the people to fight for them. And in doing so, you know, indoctrinating a whole uh, generation of youth to just march blindly to their deaths uh, into the gaping maw of this great war. Um, our next reading is from the second notebook uh, written between November 4th and December 14th, 1914. And it describes uh, Bartas' first experience uh, with war. Quote, it was at Barlet that I heard, for the first time, the sound of cannon at the front. I turned my head in that direction instinctively, like a beast turns towards where he senses danger. And then a bit later he writes, I was right at the confines of civilization. Two kilometers away, men had plunged backwards 20 centuries into the midst of the barbarism which reigned in those distant times. Finally, we all had tears in our eyes. In a few words, they sketched out their sad fate. Every night you had to attack, patrol, or dig. The machine guns drove you mad. You had to lie in the mud for hours at a time. Daily rains, no shelters, badly fed, such was their sad fate, and such was going to be mine." End quote. Our next reading is uh, two first-hand accounts written by Louis Barta, in which the, some of the men around him were deceived uh, by the Germans. The first reading is from the second notebook and is as follows, quote, At daybreak, in the fog, our men saw silhouettes of skirmishers advancing upon them. The sentinels called out, To arms! To arms! Soon, a few shots rang out, 
But immediately the assailants cried, Don't shoot! We're English! Indeed, they wore the caps of our allies, and given their close proximity, there was nothing unreasonable about our encountering an English patrol, or work detail, lost in the fog. The firing ceased immediately. But alas, it was the Kaiser's cutthroats, in disguise. Leaping into the trench with savage cries, they massacred the occupants. Some of our men tried to fall back to our lines, but they were cut down before reaching them. A few owed their lives to hiding in the water in the high grass of the marshland. End quote. And then later on in the fourth notebook, we have the following quote. In the deserted grassy fields between Anakin and Vermel, you would see a flock of sheep appear each day, peacefully led by an old shepherd, who perhaps was disguising his age, dressed in an ample old cloak. We were amazed by his carelessness, but who was going to challenge an old man who already had one foot in the tomb? Nevertheless, this fellow turned out to be a spy, no doubt a German who carried out his villainous job until the day when the English, less trusting than we were, sent him off to spy in the next world. They had finally noticed that whenever one of their own batteries was put into place, the sheep came to graze nearby, arrayed in such a way that the Germans could fix their sights on the battery be on the lookout for the howitzer shells, which soon came tumbling down." End quote. Our next quote is Bartas talking about lice, those legions of tiny bugs that were just everywhere. This is from the Eighth Notebook, quote, with heavy rains each day forcing us to stay inside our billets, our primary occupation was hunting lice. Each of us carried thousands of them. They found a home in the smallest crease, along seams, in the linings of our clothing. There were white ones, black ones, gray ones with crosses on their backs like crusaders, tiny ones, and others as big as a grain of wheat. And all this variety swarmed and multiplied to the detriment of our skins. And these lice bore in as well on the tough skin of a rude peasant as on the soft skin of an effeminate Parisian. They made no distinction among levels of society. To get rid of them, some rubbed themselves all over with gasoline every night. Others carried sachets of camphor or powdered themselves with insecticide. Nothing did any good. You'd kill ten of them, and a hundred more would appear. This all came from the repulsive filthiness of our bedding, which was hardly ever changed, and the difficulties we had doing laundry. The cold was so pervasive that as soon as anything was washed, it froze solid. Where could we thaw it out and put it out to dry?" End quote.
Our next reading deals with Bartas's first encounter with a horrifying new weapon. A new weapon that had been pioneered by the Germans and was intended to break some of the static deadlock of this new modern technological war. And that was the flamethrower. This is from Notebook 5, written uh, from June 2nd to July 2nd, 1915. Quote, But what is this? Has hell opened up under our feet? Are we right at the rim of a furious volcano? The trench is filled with flames, with sparks, with bitter smoke. The air is unbreathable. I hear hissing, crackling, and alas, yes, the cries of pain. Sergeant Verger has scorched eyes. At my feet, two miserable creatures are rolling on the ground. Their clothes, their hands, their faces on fire, like human torches. And in the trench, everything is on fire. Blankets, tent cloths, sandbags. The Germans had just fired some sort of incendiary liquid on us. What's more, a pack of signal fuses has just ignited, and that's what's causing the most noise, the most sparks, the most smoke. My two arms protecting my face, I flee from this hell. My senses completely overturned. I rejoin my squad. They tell me that my eyes stared vacantly, wildly, and that I spoke incoherently. But that didn't last, and I quickly got out of it. End quote. There's a little uh, footnote here um, about this incendiary liquid that directs you to the back of the book, where there's just some fascinating information, some of the background information about this incident. And it is as follows, quote, The flamethrower, or Flammenwerfer, was a German invention. Though the notion of pyrotechnic projection goes back at least as far as the so-called Greek fire, which the Byzantine navy successfully used to turn away Muslim flotillas in 678. The first recorded flamethrower attack of the Great War occurred on February 26, 1915 at Malincourt Woods, west of Verdun. The Germans, employing stationary devices, took 220 acres and two lines of French trenches, a substantial gain in Western Front terms. They continued their experiments, and Bartas found himself on the receiving end of a flamethrower attack early in June 1915, memorably recorded here. The Germans next directed liquid fire at the British on July 30th at Hugue, near Ypres this time trying out portable backpack versions of the projector. Jets of flame, as if from a line of powerful fire hoses, said the British official history, spraying fire instead of water, shot across the front trenches. The fire hose simile was particularly apt. In one of those ironies of which history is so fond, the special detachment of combat engineers that operated the devices were mostly firemen turned soldiers under the command of the former fire chief of Leipzig. End quote. Like, how crazy is that? And how ironic that 
A good deal of these earliest flamethrower soldiers in the German army, these specialized combat engineers, were former firefighters in, in you know, and they're under the command of a former fire chief, and now they're spraying fire on people. Um, this quote really, really makes me think, and and it it really illustrates. And keep in mind, the flamethrower uh, was just one of a variety of new, horrifying, modern technological weapons. Uh, you know, you can imagine a First World War soldier who is used to uh, bright uniforms and riflery and drums and flags and stuff like that. Imagine what they thought or how they felt the first time they saw a flamethrower or poison gas or a tank uh, or a fighter plane, any of those things. So I just, I just find that really, really interesting. This next reading is from 1915, um, again from the fifth notebook, and it's Bartas talking about him and the men he's with going up to the front, which he calls the Lorette Charnel House, um, so like death house or corpse house, and it's for him something that conjures up a great deal of horrible memories. Uh, in fact, the beginning of the notebook says. Uh, quote, Lorette, a sinister name, evoking scenes of horror, gloomy woods, sunken roads, plateaus and ravines taken and retaken 20 times, where for months, night after night, we cut each other's throats, massacred each other incessantly. We made that little corner of the earth a human charnel house by the criminal obstinacy of our top brass, who knew quite well that nothing decisive would come from this petty style of fighting, these nasty little attacks. But they imagined that in this war of attrition, in this cruel game, the Germans would be the first ones to be worn down. Je les grignote, i.e. I'm nibbling away at them, says paunchy old Joffre. A phrase that the press picks up like a rare pearl and this futile, bloody offensive dragged on for several months, end quote. That's interesting, you know, the, the high commander of the French armies, je les grignote, like I'm, I'm nibbling away at them, um, you know, and this was written in 1915, um, so already a lot of these high commanders are realizing, hmm, there may not be a decisive victory in this war, uh, we, we have to chip away at them, chip away at them, and Joff has grasped this. And in fact, uh, later on at Verdun, the German high commander Falkenhayn will do the same thing. He was famously quoted as saying, uh, you know, Verdun is where he would uh, bleed the French army white. So you see, like, the high commanders are already beginning to realize, oh, you know, good God, this is going to be a war where we just have to butcher as many of their people as possible. Instead of doing or trying for a decisive victory where we capture a strategic location or a capital city or, you know, break their morale and they all run away and we win the war. No, it's you just have to get those numbers up. You And, and in the process, you are going to lose an immense amount of soldiers. But as long as they lose more and faster and they have a harder time replacing them, then you will win the war. I mean, it's, how how 
uh, atrocious is that? How horrifying is that? In any case, a bit later, he details, like I said, uh, them going up to the front lines with, quote, At the entrance to A, we found a large boyau, that's like a trench, which led us to a branch of a sunken road near the little ruined village of Nulette. We had to stay here for three days in reserve. This was no doubt to get us used to the cannon's roar, the musty smell of rotten flesh, the fat venomous flies, the ticks, the worms, the rats, everything unclean and impure that swarms and flourishes in a charnel house. Along the embankment of the sunken road, the engineers had carved dugouts covered with sheets of iron, each meant to hold a dozen men at most, but where 40 of us were piled up. Of course, you couldn't lie down, or hardly even crouch down with your legs curled up, and you couldn't move without provoking howls of complaint from your neighbors. You couldn't get out of this stuffy little hole without stepping on feet, legs, and knees, and what little air there was inside was poisonous. It was hot enough to hatch chickens in there, To make things worse, legions of fleas and ticks climbed up the straw, which covered the floor, and onto our legs, our arms, our backbones, leading to uncontrollable itching." Um, And this is something that pops up again and again and again in first-hand accounts of the First World War, is just the immense amount of vermin. Uh, you know, like rats, worms, ticks, fleas, flies, just all of these things that are created by, you know, huge amounts of dead flesh around, uh, blood, uh, rotten food, dead animals, disturbed earth, just all of these, these horrible, horrible things, so... One of the things the Great War did uh, to millions of men is it would break their soul. It would break their spirit. Um, And a lot of these people would just become resigned to their fate. And they were ready to accept death. They had been uh, through so much that that you you just become numb and, and you don't care anymore. So I wanted to share two stories, uh, first-hand accounts from Louis Bartas about guys that he knew that this happened to them. The first one is from Notebook 5, and it's about a guy in his unit who was a school teacher. Quote, My friends Gilles and Allard yelled to me as they fled, Mon Dieu doesn't want to come. Go get him. The school teacher from Pépure was at the other end of the squad. In three bounds, I was on him. Tort was there, urging him on one last time to follow us. When I appeared, Tort took off. Mondier, hunched over, was quietly writing a letter, just as calm as if he were at his desk in the schoolroom in front of his class. It seemed to mean nothing to him that a battery of heavy caliber guns had trained their sights on him. 
Well, you're crazy, Monjet, I said to him. Do you want to get yourself blown to pieces? Ugh, what the hell, he said. Maybe you'll get killed where you're going. No, I begged him. They've been moving steadily in this direction each time they fire. The next one is right in line with the one before. It'll land right here. Come on. Mondiet shook his head and continued to write. So then, um, you know, Louis Barta, as much as he hates to admit it, he says, in the face of such stubbornness, I had to save my own skin. A few more salvos landed, and then the Bosch, which is uh, French for, like, slang for the Germans, turned the mouths of their cannon elsewhere. Later on, he goes back to see what happened to this guy, because, you know, he had to flee. Uh, I asked for a volunteer to come with me. Arix from Narbonne stepped forward. As for the place where Mondia had been, the trench was completely filled in. In spite of the risk of being spotted by the Germans, we excavated a bit and uncovered a boiled, shriveled head and a KP, which, by its distinctive shape, we recognized to be that of Mondier. With big drops of sweat rolling off our foreheads, our limbs trembling with emotion, Arix and I threw a couple of shovelfuls of earth onto his head out of which all of the life and intelligence had been so brutally torn, leaving behind just a shapeless mass. For some time, Mondier had a premonition of his fate. The very day before, he had written a despondent letter to his family, which we learned later on. Now is the question of, well, what, what do we do with his body? What can we do? Night having fallen, the 13th squad went to work digging out the body of Mondier and burying it properly. But hardly had we gotten this done when we were called to a man to man a forward listening post. So the next morning when we came back, we saw that they had piled up uh, a lot of dirt on top of the body that they had dug from the trench. But Barta knew that this would eventually just be annihilated by artillery. So the squad was really at a loss uh, as to what to do with the body of this school teacher from Pepier. So, quote, we did everything we could to save it from oblivion. We stuck on top of it a rude cross made of two pieces of wood, next to which we planted a bottle, neck down, containing a piece of paper with his name written on it. But we knew that a couple of shells landing nearby would soon make an end of it. And the name Mondier would live on only in our memories. Um, so that's one of the more poignant episodes that I could kind of find in this book of, of this guy. And I mean, what do you do when you don't get an evacuation to the rear? You don't get, uh, you know, a funeral or even anything, any kind of remembrance. It's just your body is everything is is lost in many cases, annihilated, uh, which is just terrible. Our next story is about a French soldier um, that Barta knew called uh, Durand. This is from the Tenth Notebook, so April twenty sixth to May nineteenth, nineteen sixteen. Quote: Just then, in a shell hole, I saw the body of a soldier. 
thickly encrusted from head to toe in dried mud. Well, I said, here's a dead one already. And I poked him with my foot to make sure he was no longer among the living, but had entered the realm of Pluto. Uh, Pluto being the Roman god of the underworld. The reply was a protest. Leave me alone. And in this grumbling, I recognized the voice of my fellow Periaqua. So like uh, Peria is like where he's from, like the area. Edouard Durand, who was in the fourth section with me. Stupefied, I asked him how he had gotten into this comatose state. He told me how, tangled up in a jumble of barbed wire, he couldn't get himself loose until nightfall after much trouble. And then he couldn't rejoin our section which had disappeared in the darkness. After having wandered around for hours, he was finally able to rejoin his squad at daybreak. But, I told him, don't stay there, immobile, all soaked on the damp ground. Get up and shake yourself off. Overcome with fatigue, he didn't budge. Ugh, one way of croaking is just as good as another, he said, and I wasn't able to pull him out of that state. Besides, his half-section had left us to go who knows where, and I didn't see my comrade again. So that's the last time that Louis Bartas saw this guy, Edouard Durand, just covered mostly in mud, not willing to move, just ready to die. Um, and, and you see this in first-hand accounts all the time of these men who just, uh, you know, that for, for better or for worse, they've, they've just given up. And there, there's, I'm not going to read this specifically, this quote, but I remember uh, at another point in Poilu, Louis Bartas says, he, he speculates on, well, really, who is better off, the living or the dead? Uh, because the dead don't have to suffer anymore. So, well, just think about that. One of the things that pops up again and again and again in Poilu is Bartas' kind of reflection that a good deal of the officers and authority figures uh, who are managing this war, supporting, pushing this war, are cruel or selfish or self-interested or incompetent. And um, he gives just so many examples of this. The first example is from the seventh notebook. So, September 27th to November 15th, 1915. And it is, quote, The exact timing of our attack was kept secret from the men until the very last moment, for morale purposes. In reality, they didn't want to give the soldiers time to organize any sort of resistance to orders. Our officers couldn't believe that, in the 20th century, free men would allow themselves to be led to the slaughter without knowing why or how. And then a bit later. Evidently, that all went according to plan. Out of fear that we wouldn't attack, they decided to push us beyond our forward positions without telling us. Once we were right on top of the Germans, we would have to take care of ourselves and make the best of it. This crude trick could have had grave consequences, and it shows the villainous mentality of our leaders. It did nothing to raise their prestige in our eyes or to diminish the mistrust which they inspired in us." End quote. 
Later on in the seventh uh, notebook, we have, quote, to improve our routine in the trenches a little bit, they gave us hardly anything to eat back in the rear. Try working or marching all night and keeping your spirits up on an empty stomach. And meanwhile, nice and warm, with full bellies, our officers drank, sang, enjoyed themselves in the village. It was revolting. And it ended up leading the men to revolt. End quote. In the 10th notebook, April 26 to May 19, 1916, he writes, quote, Sub-Lieutenant Roque represented a common type of young officer. Brave, courageous, well-trained, but immature, play-acting, filled with pride, treating the men like children, sometimes having fun with them, but in a quick mood swing capable of meanness and petty vexations. In a word, just as likely to commit dramatic acts of egotism and cowardice as acts of heroism, depending on the circumstances, and then in brackets, and the amount of hooch consumed. End quote. A little later in the 11th notebook, May 19th to July 12, 1916, he uh, describes this, this colonel. This was Colonel Robert. Quote. This terrible fellow stuck his nose into everything, watching, surveying firsthand to make sure that the numerous rules he issued each day at roll call were being observed. What bothered him most of all was seeing the tail flaps of our uniform coats even a centimeter out of place when they were folded back. Even if you were a hero, brave as could be, or as smart as anyone, you were nothing but an idiot, a good-for-nothing, if you showed too much of the pocket underneath the flap. End quote. In the Twelfth Notebook, Louis Bartas reflects on the small acts of kindness that sometimes took place between uh, trenches of enemy combatants. And he wonders how next generations will reinterpret these events as the war echoes throughout history. Uh, it is true that, you know, the French and the Germans, for example, weren't always killing each other. Sometimes there was a ceasefire and sometimes secretly the men would trade items or, or you know, would refrain from attacking at certain times, stuff of that nature. And Barta thinks about this when he writes, quote, By whose pen will the next generation, struck with stupor, disconcerted by this universal sanguinary madness, learn about these acts of fraternity, which were like a protest, a revolt against the mortal fate which set face to face men who had no reason to hate each other, for the honor of our generation, of civilization, of humanity, may those who follow us have the truth revealed to them. For some, it will be a comfort. For others, an example, a lesson, a warning about the danger of launching a new war. End quote. last readings I'd like to share with you are from the 19th notebook at the very, very end of Poilu, where Louis Barta reflects about 
the Great War. Um, and he details how he felt when he heard for the very first time that the war was over. And he shares his thoughts about what the war meant to him and his opinions on the conflict. I think that when the Great War ended, there were a small percentage of soldiers that really didn't think about it too much. Uh, maybe they weren't self-reflective types. Maybe they intentionally didn't think about it because they didn't want to confront the senseless horror of the conflict. Uh, but I think a great majority of soldiers interpreted the war in their own way. They crafted their own personal truth. Um, for some, it was just senseless butchery where they lost a bunch of their friends. And for what? Uh, for some, it was, you know, this colossal conflict between elites who are struggling to stay in power. Or on the other side, you know, some people, it was a, a glorious conflict to save their country uh, or to serve their king or to make their village proud or to defend their family. It, you know, there, there's really any number of kind of interpretations uh as to what the war meant to any given soldier. I, I don't think there was any kind of universal reaction. Um, I know that when confronted with the, the senseless, faceless, impersonal kind of terror of modern warfare, that really did um, affect a lot of the post-war art movements. Uh, so, But I'm not going to get into that right now. Let's start with a quote uh, from the 19th Notebook about how Bartok felt when he heard the war was over. Quote, How many times had we thought about this blessed day, which so many did not live to see? How many times had we peered into the mysterious future, looking for this star of salvation, this invisible lighthouse in the dark night? And now, this forever immortal day had arrived. This happiness, this joy, overwhelmed us. We couldn't keep it in our hearts. We stood there looking at each other, mute and stupid." End quote. Our last reading is Louis Bartas' reflections and thoughts about what the war really meant. Um, and before we get to it, I just want to remind the listener that Louis Bartas was not a volunteer. He was actually conscripted into the French army, like the vast majority of the French army. So that may help to explain a little bit of the first part of the quote. The quote is very long, so I want you to hang in there. Uh, but it is worth it because I think it really captures the soul, the spirit of the entire book, uh, all 19 notebooks. So, quote. I was free after 54 months of slavery. I was finally escaping from the claws of militarism, to which I swore such a ferocious hatred. I have sought to inculcate this hatred in my children, my friends, my neighbors. I will tell them that the fatherland, glory, military honor, laurels, all are only vain words destined to mask what is frighteningly horrible, ugly, and cruel about war. To keep up morale during this war to justify it, they lied cynically, saying that we were fighting just for the triumph of right and justice, that they were not guided by ambition, nor colonial covetousness or financial 
or commercial interests. They lied when they said that we had to push right to the end so that this would be the last of all wars. They lied when they said that we, the Poilu, wanted to continue the war in order to avenge the dead so that our sacrifices would not be useless. They lied. But I'm not going to write any more about the lies which came out of the mouths or the pens of our governors or journalists. Victory has made us forget everything, absolve everything. Our leaders needed it at all cost to save themselves. And to get it, they would have sacrificed the whole human race, as General Castle now said. In the villages, they're already talking about raising monuments of glory, of apotheosis, to the victims of the big butchery, to those, as the phony patriots say, who have voluntarily made the sacrifice of their lives, as if those unfortunate ones could have chosen to do otherwise. I'll contribute my penny only if the monuments symbolize a vehement protest against war and the warrior spirit and do not exalt or glorify such a death so as to incite future generations to follow the example of these reluctant martyrs. Ah, uh, if the dead of this war could come out of their tombs, how they would shatter these monuments of hypocritical pity, because those who are erecting have sacrificed these dead without pity. Who has dared to cry out, enough blood spilled, enough dead, enough suffering? Who has refused to turn in his gold, his silver, his paper money publicly in the war bond drives to keep the war going? Return to the bosom of my family after the nightmare years. I taste the joy of life, or rather, of new life. I feel tender happiness about things which, before, I didn't pay attention to. Sitting at home, at my table, lying in my bed, putting off sleep, so I can hear the wind hitting the shutters, rustling the nearby plane trees, hearing the rain strike the windows, looking at a starry, serene, silent night, or on a dark, moonless night, thinking about similar nights spent up there. Often, I think about my many comrades fallen by my side. I heard their curses against the war and its authors, the revolt of their whole beings against their tragic fate, against their murder. And I, as a survivor, believe that I am inspired by their will to struggle without ceasefire nor mercy to my last breath for the idea of peace and human fraternity." End quote. All right, well, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, as part of our ongoing series on the First World War, we've gotten a French perspective about the conflict from Louis Bartas, author of Poilu, the World War I notebooks of Corporal Louis Bartas, barrel maker, 1914 to 1918. Um, I really hope that, you know, this maybe illustrated some things about the war that uh, perhaps were fuzzy or just really helped to give a personal perspective that's maybe different from a lot of the history textbooks 
maybe you know it, it made it feel more real in a sense but in any case um, I'd like to thank you so so much for listening this has been bite-sized history the show where I try to make history fun fast and interesting I was Nick your host listener mail can be sent to bite-sized history podcast at gmail.com And once again, thank you so much for listening.